A long-term care facility resident falls asleep, his arm falls in the heater, and he gets third-degree burns. A woman fights her illegal eviction while she is also dying. Very few police actually participate in investigations against them. Tailing ponds have been leaking for almost a year. A local First Nation isn't alerted to the danger. And Canada's top soldier was in Ukraine meeting with their top soldier this past weekend. Good morning. It's Monday, March 6th. I'm Nora, and here are your headlines. First, we start in Sudbury, where a resident at the Extended Care York Long-Term Care Center received third-degree burns while sleeping in his room. Remember that third-degree burns are the most severe. The man has dementia, and his arm, quote-unquote, ended up on a radiator. The burns were so severe, he needs a skin graft. His wife told CBC that she blamed the facility for his injuries, saying that there might be two people during the day on weekends to cover 26 people. This despite the fact that the residents have many complex health needs, including her husband. His room is small and his bed is right against a baseboard heater. His wife said that while there's supposed to be space between the bed and the heater, she's come in many times to see that that bed was pushed right up against the wall. His name is Frank Brumiller, and he's lived in that facility since December 2021. His wife, Diane, wanted him placed in a facility in Espanola, where the couple lives, but he was placed instead in the Sudbury facility. He was supposed to be transferred within the year, but that never happened. She makes the hour-long drive from Sudbury to Espanola and back six days a week to provide primary care for him, including bathing and dressing. Angela Gamil and Jonathan Mignon, the reporters who, who wrote the story for CBC Sudbury, didn't mention that over the course of the pandemic and up until the Ontario government stopped publicly reporting this information in mid-2022, at least nine people died at this facility, the Extended Care York facility, from COVID-19. Now to Nanaimo, where the world's worst landlord is trying to evict a dying woman. Sharon Kowalchuk was given two weeks' notice, told to vacate her rented room while she's dying from a terminal illness. Dean Stoltz is reporting that her landlord has blamed her frequent trips to the hospital and related ambulance noise for why she was being evicted. The landlord even cut her heat and power. Kowalchuk uses oxygen, making this move particularly demonic. Kowalchuk's story has been shared a lot, and she's received a lot of offers for help. But Czech has also received calls from former tenants who said that the same landlord has done this to them or other people that they know. The landlord is required by law to give 60 days notice of an eviction. The residential tenancy branch is investigating. The landlord could be on the hook for a fine of $5,000 per day. But many advocates that Stoltz talks to in many stories say that this isn't enough. I mean, clearly, if that's the law in the books and this guy cuts a dying woman's oxygen to kick her out of a unit, it's not a fine that this guy cares about. Now, there's a curious issue in the stories from Stoltz that I read. I read three different ones. The landlord isn't named exactly. In two stories, he's not named at all. And in one story, someone in a quote refers to the landlord as Dewey. It's a weird editorial decision for Czech to have not named this piece of human garbage. I think I can reasonably call him that. 
In one of the stories, it says, quote, Check News is not saying where the house is and where the landlord lives because of threats he alleges that he has received, unquote. I mean, okay, but you're not even going to name him? First of all, if he wants to be an asshole, tenants have a right to consent to a journalist to say that they can publish the location of their property. The landlord, if he doesn't want to deal with backlash, can, oh, I don't know, not be a dick. But by not naming him, Check is helping to hide this guy's identity. How can other folks come forward corroborating stories about this guy other than just randomly saying, oh, I think that sounds like Dewey, and then calling Check and saying, oh, it is Dewey, whoever Dewey is. It's clear that they know who he is. In a third story, the landlord told Check to get the fuck off his property and then grabbed their camera. Grabbing a journalist's camera is a declaration of war, but Check decided to not just wave a white flag, but actually protect his identity. Anyway, there's no journalistic reason to not name this guy, and maybe he is named in other articles. I only read three, but he's breaking the law, and his actions are newsworthy enough that they are the subject of several stories about him. By not naming him, Czech gives him more power lets him hide behind this anonymity. I hope that they change their mind on this one, not only because it's journalistically what they should be doing, but they would never give a marginalized person so much latitude and cover if they, say, randomly walked up to someone and yanked the plug out of their oxygen tank. Now to national news, an investigation from the Globe and Mail's Nancy McDonald that will surprise absolutely none of you. McDonald has found that very few police officers who are investigated for police misconduct actually participate in the investigations. The article says, quote, the Globe and Mail examined thousands of decisions made by these agencies, oversight agencies for police boards, in the past five years to understand the extent of cooperation by accused officers. The data suggests their participation is rare, in BC almost non-existent, undermining the ability to hold law enforcement accountable, unquote. I do find it very interesting, the choice of words there. The data suggests their participation is where. No, the data doesn't suggest it. It shows it. It shows it really directly. It's really freaking clear. If you read this investigation, they are not participating in these investigations. Police officers are often relying on the fact that they have the right to remain silent, as any Canadian has in a criminal proceeding against someone. So they don't have to participate in investigations. They have the right to remain silent. The question is, does the fact that these people use deadly force make it more important that they're compelled to participate in these investigations? That's asked in this investigation. The article is very good, but honestly, if you haven't listened yet to Archie Mann's Fuck or F the Police season of Canada Land Commons, you should absolutely listen to it. It goes through a lot of the same issues and is extremely well done. Anyway, back to the investigation. McDonald mentions that Canada has a very high rate of police killings. It's seven times higher than Germany, 20 times higher than England and Wales, 50 times higher than Japan. We do not have as high a rate as the United States, and that probably skews how we understand police violence in Canada. Since the year 2000, at least 1,129 Canadians have died in encounters with police. Only 22 officers were charged in the deaths of 13 people. See what I said before? Suggest? There's no suggestions there. It can be more clear. 13 people's deaths of 1,129 resulted in charges. McDonald goes through the numbers for each province. So if you're curious to see where your province stands, you definitely should check out the investigation. 
McDonald makes a point, though, that British Columbia seems to be by far the worst place. See what I just did there? Seems to be. I added that myself. Ugh. It is the worst uh, location for cooperation with these investigations. In BC, just 2% of the 198 officers who were investigated in the last five years cooperated in the investigation. Now, I was left with a couple of questions after reading this, I have to be honest. One that I had was, why do these independent investigation bureaus even exist if they're so ineffective? They're obviously not useful almost at all. If all Canadians can refuse to participate in an investigation into charges against them, but not all are let off as a result, then clearly the issue is with the body that is doing the initial investigation itself, not with the fact that they have the right to remain silent. No murderer who uses the right to remain silent gets off. <laughs> There's going to be other evidence that they're able, that a judge goes through to try them at a trial. And so the real issue does seem to be these oversight bodies. But anyway, as with all things police, the system is set up to help them. And as with all things Globe and Mail investigations, they identify something that is fundamentally flawed, but never go so far as to suggest that there needs to be a massive upheaval of the status quo. Regardless, it is definitely still worth the read. Now to Alberta, where the leadership of the Athabasca Fort Chipewyan First Nation is furious that the tailings ponds from the Kirill Lake project have been leaking for almost a year. The groundwater has dangerous levels of chemicals, quote, including arsenic, hydrocarbons, and sulfides. A report from Danielle Paradis for APTN quotes Chief Alan Adam, who said, quote, I am very dismayed over the failure of Imperial Oil and the Alberta regulator to inform us of the ongoing and uncontained leaks from the tailing facilities at the Curl Lake project. A large majority of the community eat food from the land that could have been contaminated by this leak. While the Alberta Energy Regulator should have notified the Athabasca Fort Chipewyan First Nation about the leaks, they did not do so in a timely manner. Adam said, quote, when you look at the whole thing, if this was the city of Edmonton or Calgary that this happened, they would notify the public right away. For them, dealing with the Indian problem is to poison us and get rid of us eventually, he continued. And finally, Chief of Defense Staff General Wayne Eyre just finished a trip to Ukraine. Did you know he'd gone? I personally had missed that. The Canadian press, citing a readout from the Department of National Defense, said that he was in Kyiv and met with the Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, General Valery Zelzunyi. I may have pronounced that wrong. I'm sorry if I did. He also met with Ukrainian soldiers as well, some who were trained by Canada and the Canadian ambassador to Ukraine. That's it, though. That's all we got. A statement issued on Saturday from the Department of National Defense about our top soldier going to an active war zone to meet with their top soldier. And they just hung out. If you read the readout itself, it's basically the same thing that the Canadian press reports, begging one obvious question. Why not just reprint the readout with quotes around it? I know that war journalism is a joke in this country, but it's hardly telling us anything. Though cynical me does see the impending federal budget and the need to boost spending support for Ukraine, which also means boosting political support to increase spending. Anyway, that happens. There's no other information other than they had a bunch of meetings and hung out. The readout ends like this, quote, the situation in Ukraine and its wider impact reinforces the needed urgency to ensure Canadian armed forces continued readiness in support of Ukraine and NATO and in an increasingly dangerous world. That part, though, didn't make it into CTV's version of the story. Those are your headlines for Monday, March 6th. I'm Nora, and I hope you have a great week.